Let's turn uh, briefly to Leviticus chapter 10. This is not the text we will be going through, but I think it's appropriate to start here to frame us once again. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 and then skip down to verses 8 to 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. Notice the connection there between sanctification, holiness, and glory. And Aaron held his peace. Jumping down to verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It will be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we come again, as always, in need of help, but we come again, as always, to the God who is ready to give help to his people. Give us insight and understanding into your word, minds that are ready to grasp the height and the depth of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and hearts ready to apply and to walk in the light of the holiness of the Lord. We thank you for this time now. Please bless it for the sake of Christ. Amen. Well, I sent out a message to the men this week and uh, said I wouldn't be able to go into as much recap as I would like to from last time, and that's going to be the case, but I am still going to give a little bit of recap, as much as I'm able to. You may recall last time we began by reading 1 Samuel chapter 6, and we saw there the story of the ark being returned from Philistia unto Israel, and we noted that when it got into Israel, into the land of Beth Shemesh, the men mishandled it and they died. And that led us to make a, a very simple observation about 1 Samuel. People kept dying when they were making contact with this ark inappropriately. So that led us to the question, what is so significant about this ark? Right? Why does this keep happening? And our answer was that the ark is part of a category in the national life of Israel known as holy things. Holy things. And part of the distinction that the priests and the people were called to make, as we just read in Leviticus 10, was the distinction between holy things on the one hand and common things on the other. And so that led us into an exploration of understanding what is meant by holy and common in the Scriptures. And I gave the answer up front that we sought to vindicate. And I'll remind you of it. The idea of the holy and the common is the Bible's way of distinguishing between the two post-fall kingdoms that exist in the world and distinguishing the things that belong unto each of those kingdoms or realms. And to illustrate this, we went back to the kingdom of creation that God had given with, uh, with Adam. And we argued that that kingdom was in fact a holy kingdom. And what that meant was that everything in the kingdom itself, that would be all of creation, was set apart by God unto a particular purpose. And that was an eschatological purpose. That is, it would advance unto glory. Holiness is not merely the lack of sinfulness or the possession of positive righteousness. That is a subcomponent of it and an important one. 
But I want, what I'm trying to drive home is that holiness has an eschatological component at its foundation. It's setting apart unto a particular end. And so in the kingdom of Adam, not just man, but society, the earth, right, uh, the, the culture that would be produced within that realm, all of that was subject to advancement. All of it was considered holy. And so there was one kingdom in which everything was holy to the Lord. Then we saw the fall, and that in the fall, God delayed final judgment and promised a Messiah. We're all familiar with that. And so in that context, the world must continue, but now it must continue in, which, uh, in a situation where sin is present. And sin is destructive. And so we need something to restrain the effects of sin in the world that will allow for life to continue, that the promised seed may actually have the opportunity to come, and yet in such a way that sin can still exist in the world. And so to accomplish that purpose, God introduces a temporary, non-eternal, non-consummating, that is moving from this present age unto glory, non-consummating kingdom that both the wicked and the righteous inhabit together. We call it the common kingdom. Now, common here does not mean that something is sinful, right? We're not contrasting sinfulness with righteousness. It simply means that something that is common does not consummate. It does not move eschatologically unto glory. But it has a particular end point. It's got a time when it's no more. It doesn't advance into eternity. That's the, the basic idea of common. And we gave two pieces of evidence to show that this new kingdom sphere really is introduced after the fall. The first was we noted that God introduces something temporary into the structure of the world. Genesis 3, we went through and we noted that God introduces something there, again as we said, in the context of allowing the Messiah to come and the world to continue. And so implicit in God's doing that is that once the Messiah has come and His work is complete, the purpose for which this realm is established has been fulfilled. The assumption being that it will then end. It will not continue into eternity. But then we said that God says explicitly in Genesis 9 that this common kingdom, this common realm, is temporary and that it will only be in force as long as the earth remains. We'll revisit that text a little bit later. That's the first thing. We noted God introduces something temporary that now has a finite endpoint. Second thing we noted was that this new realm operates off of a different principle than the original holy realm of Adam. Adam's holy realm was governed by the idea that he would receive blessings for obedience to God's law and a curse in exchange for disobedience. And that the way in which that kingdom would be built was through that principle. Adam would obey, he would work, he would labor. And as he obeyed, God would bless that work. He would receive blessing and the work of his hands would be successful and the kingdom would be built. There was a direct connection between blessings for obedience and a curse for disobedience. But then we noted that in Genesis 3, we have this new realm in which that principle is no longer the case. For righteous men and wicked men will both experience blessings and curses in this life, which God outlines in Genesis 3, in a way that is not of necessity tied to their obedience. And that principle that mankind, mankind receives blessings and cursings solely on the basis of God's providence rather than obedience or disobedience is called in Reformed theology common grace or common mercy. We see it throughout the scriptures. So now that we've established the existence of the common realm in the post-fall world, here's what I want to do today. I want to walk us through portions, just snippets, of Genesis 4 to 11, and I want to show you 
how the Bible lays out the development of this common realm, right? We got to its existence in Genesis 3. Now I want to show you how God establishes it and develops it. Again, the overall attempt that we're making here is to, is to learn how to discern between holy and common. We can't do that if we don't have properly defined what is, it to, what is common and what is holy and, and the nature of the two kingdoms. So I just want to go through today and we're going to develop this common realm and our understanding of it. We will see the features inherent in it and how God providentially guides and progresses this kingdom. And here's the reason for doing this. You and I, though we be saints of the Most High, still live in this common realm. That's where we live right now. And in Genesis 4-11, through the Bible lays out the establishment of many of the features that impact you in this world in your everyday life. Things like languages, government, music, economics, nation-states, animals, marriage, children, cities, work, entertainment, ethnicities. Is anybody in here impacted by any of that stuff in your daily life? I take it you are. Well, guess what? God has given us several chapters right here at the beginning of the Bible that lay out the foundation for explaining what those things are, what their purpose is, and how God has intended them to function, not only for fallen mankind generally, but to the Christian specifically. Most of the time I find that, that when folks address this, this section of Scripture, the only thing they can really remember from it is the flood. Right? Aren't those, isn't that chapters where the flood happened? Yes, it is. But there's more to it, and there's a reason God has put this stuff here. So I want to take a look at that. So then, let's begin. We'll start in, uh, in Genesis 4. I'll, I'll give you verse markers when we're actually going to look specifically at the text. But let's just set up what's going on here in Genesis 4. After being cast from the garden, Adam and his family are living on the earth, and they are experiencing the blessings and the curses of this fallen world that are outlined in Genesis 3. They're living in the land of Eden, but they are no longer dwelling in the garden on God's holy mountain. They're working the ground. They are living and they're eating. But you get the impression that they kind of live in what we might consider a primitive social order, if you want to call it that. Adam seems to be the, the head of a family-based social order. We don't get the idea that some great civilization has yet been built. Technological advancements are probably quite low at this point in time. They've not spread abroad throughout the world. And we don't have any indication of something like a, a mature kingship or monarchy that is yet functioning in the world. So they're living in the common realm, but it's pretty primitive at this point. But all that begins to change in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain betrays the family society, the family structure, by murdering Abel. And what we're going to see is that God actually uses that act of evil to launch a series of developments that will help structure the post-fall world, the common kingdom. And it begins with God's institution of one of the most important features of the post-fall common realm, and that is the civil magistrate. So let's look at here at Genesis chapter 4. Now the argument that I'm going to propose to you here is not original to me. It's been proposed by several Reformed theologians whom, from whom I read it, uh, most prominently a man named Meredith Klein, but we'll see that it's not just dependent on chapter 4. But I want you to consider this. In this section, God judges Cain, and he tells him that he's going to cast him east of Eden to the land of Nod or Wondering. But in their interactions, Cain notes a problem, right? He notes a particular problem in what God proposes, and that is the world out there into which he's about to be sent seems rather uncontrolled or undeveloped. It's relatively lawless, and in his mind, it's going to be ruled by a particular principle. We call that principle today anarchy. We listen to what he says. Whoever finds me will kill me. 
Whoever finds me will kill me. God has created a common sphere in which Cain can live and operate, but he thinks he's identified a defect. There's nothing out there, once he's away from the face of God, to keep everybody from doing whatever they want and from, potentially in his case, killing him. Now, he's just killed Abel and had no problem with that. He had no uh, desire for protection for Abel. But, but now others will be able to do the same to him, and all of a sudden, he's not happy. Cain is looking for something. He's looking for some kind of authority structure for when he goes out there. Something to enforce God's law between men that will provide him with protection and restrain the effects of anarchy in the world. It's hypocritical on his part, of course, but that's what he's looking for. That's what he thinks is lacking. Now, what's God's response? He assures Cain that that will not be the case. His fears will not come to pass. Notice what he says down there in verse 15. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. So God promises Cain some means of restraining lawlessness or evil in the world. His fears are not going to come to pass. But what is it? Now, the next words in the text are probably some of the most misunderstood, abused, and confusing words in the entire Bible. It says at the end of verse 15, in our English translations, And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who see him should touch him. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details, but it turns out the English words that we translate put a mark on, four English words, are actually just one word in the Hebrew. It is the Hebrew word ot. We would do it in English as ot. And that word, if you trace it throughout the Scriptures, can be properly translated actually as given oath. Given oath. So we can actually translate this as God gave an oath to Cain. Literally, he oathed to him. Or we might say more loosely in English, he swore. God swore. So in other words, what, what God is proposing here, what we call this mark, it's not some mysterious, magical, physical mark that God puts on him that, that nobody in church history has been able to understand or figure out. That's not what's going on here. What God gives him is not a physical mark, but it is an oath that he will provide something to ensure that anarchy does not dominate this world. And what is it that God is going to provide to give structure and order to the common realm? I'm going to give the assertion, and then we'll see if we can vindicate it. What God is going to provide is the state. He's going to provide a civil magistrate, right? What we call the government in some sense. Where do we see that? Notice again, God says that vengeance will be taken on the murderer sevenfold. Seven, the number of completion or perfection. In other words, God's saying full justice will be given to the one who commits murder out there. There will be a means of justice. Now put that together with what you know about the rest of the Scriptures. Who is it that God has given the task of executing temporal judgment on murderers through capital punishment? It is the state. It is the civil magistrate. And so God is promising a human agent who will exact revenge. If you want further proof, consider the parallel between this scene and Genesis 9 when Noah gets off the ark. And God reaffirms there the existence of the common world. In that text, God says explicitly, whoever sheds man's blood, murder, what Cain's worried about, what's going to happen? By man shall his blood be shed. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. God has put in place a source of human authority who is tasked with executing murderers and enforcing justice. Paul says clearly in Romans that the magistrate bears something. He bears the sword. What do swords do? They kill. Who is he to enact it against? Evil doers. So in Genesis 4, God reveals that he has established something, the civil magistrate, as an institution of the common realm to govern it. 
Now, why would God feel the need to do that? Why does he feel the need to institute the magistrate? Because the common sphere's purpose, again, is to preserve the world order for the Messiah to come. And if anarchy is allowed to run the day, if there's no check, if there's no restraint, no authority structure, what's going to happen? Mankind is just going to hack each other off in their quest for a name, in their quest for dominion or power for themselves. And so what will happen? The humanity will kill itself off. And there will once again be no redemption. There will be no Messiah. So God institutes something to regulate this sphere. The magistrate is meant to be a check on sin. Now, you can choose to believe that the mark of Cain spoken of here is, is again, some mysterious magical mark on Cain's body that maybe projects a force field around him or something like that where nobody can come near him. Right? We can still go that direction if you want. But in either case, even if you're not fully convinced that that's what's happening in chapter 4, it is clearly what happens in Genesis 9. God institutes the magistrate and tells him he will execute murderers. He will enact justice in the common realm. So either text you want to go to, to to look at the magistrate, it's there very clearly. Now this leads us to some observations about the magistrate. Three important observations. First, the magistrate is established by God. God's the one who establishes it. And he is the one who defines the task of the magistrate. And what is in this text and in Genesis 9, he explicitly tasked with doing. His goal, his job, is to enforce civic righteousness amongst men, punishing civil offenses and rewarding, as Paul says, civil good. That's the first observation. This is God's creation. It's not just an artifact of human sociology and construction that we came up with in our primitive days. God institutes this. Second observation. The standard by which the magistrate is to rule is God's law. He does not operate autonomously. It's not up to him to decide for himself what his role is or what is or is not justice. God defines that for him. And he must recognize that God has given him his task and the standard by which he is to carry that task out, his law. He is charged by God with delivering sevenfold justice in the common realm. That assumes a standard. If murder is a sin, it is a sin against God's law. And so the only way that a magistrate can define murder as wrong and therefore have a, a, an objective moral obligation to enact revenge on the murderer is if he has an objective reference point for defining what is and what is not wrong. And that for him is God's law. There is no other standard that can be appealed to. And so any theological system that seeks to keep reference to God's law out of the purview completely of the civil magistrate in the interest of promoting some kind of perverted idea of the separation of church and state is wrong. We do believe in the separation of church and state, by the way, as Baptists, but it has to be properly defined. So, God establishes the magistrate, and God and his law defines what the magistrate will do. If someone murders, he must execute justice. That's the second observation. Standard is God's law. Third observation, the civil magistrate is an institution of the common sphere. That is perhaps one of the most important points to note that emerges out of the early chapters of Genesis. God establishes the magistrate, and therefore, as Paul says, the magistrate is a minister of God. But, an important question, over which kingdom is he established as a minister? Over which kingdom? You have two options. Either he is a minister of the holy kingdom of God that will inaugurate or consummate into eternity. He's in charge with ministering God's holy eschatological kingdom. 
or he is a minister, option two, of the common realm, which will not result in eternal glorification. Now, which of those two options we should go with is found by examining the context in which the magistrate was placed and the nature of the task given to him by God. The context, remember, God introduces him after the fall in the context of sending Cain out into the world, into the midst of the common world that will be inhabited by the righteous and the wicked. And he reaffirms it in Genesis 9 when he sends mankind out into that same mutually inhabited world. That's the context twice in which God affirms the civil magistrate into the uh, existence of the common realm. Second, the purpose for which God intends the magistrate. God institutes him to enforce righteousness amongst men for the purpose of sustaining the world. Amongst men. He is a minister of the common realm. Why is that so vital? Because if you miss the fact that God has established a common realm in Genesis 3, then you will inevitably, consciously or unconsciously, have to adopt the view that the holy kingdom realm of Adam, prior to the fall, is transferred into the post-fall world. You may say it has sin in it and needs to be cleaned up, and that's fine. But you will be forced to adopt the view that the holy realm of Adam is transferred into the post-fall world and that therefore every aspect of the post-fall world, its institutions, its spheres, are subject to eternal redemption, are subject to eternal glory. In that case, there would be only one kingdom in the world and therefore the magistrate would be a minister of the holy kingdom of God. And if the civil magistrate functions as a minister of the holy realm where everything is consecrated to God to partake of glory and he's not a minister of the common realm, then it will be his duty to enforce not only civic righteousness amongst men, right, in men's interactions, but it will also be his duty to enforce individual, at least external, devotion to Yahweh by his citizenry. It will be his duty to execute judgment on time on those who do not worship Yahweh. Similar to how the magistrate functions in Israel. All false worshipers, what is their fate? According to the law, execution. They break one of the first four commandments, they receive civil punishment from Israel's magistrate. Now, assuming it, assumed in what I'm saying is that Israel is a different thing. That's what we'll get to next time. So in other words, what we're getting at is this question. Does God give the civil magistrate the task of enforcing the first and second tables of the law? all Ten Commandments, as a matter of civil policy? Or is he required to enforce the second table of the law, Commandments 5 to 10, which commandments regulate man's interactions with fellow men? Your answer will be determined by which kingdom you think he is a minister of. If he's a minister of the holy kingdom of God, in which no unclean thing may remain, then he will have to punish those who worship another god, those who bow down in front of an image, those who take God's name for vanity, and those who do not properly observe the Sabbath. That position that I've just described often goes by the name capital T, I say that for a reason, capital T, theonomy, as originally defined by men such as Ralphus Rushduni and Greg Bonson. Whether he must execute them immediately in that theological scheme, in other words, anytime someone bows down to an image or fails to observe the Sabbath day, does... Does the magistrate have to literally come and execute them right away? Or does he have other punishment options that sort of increase with repeated offenses up to execution? That's a debate that happens within that camp, and we'll leave that to them. But if you adopt that view, that there is no common kingdom, and that the magistrate is a minister of God, it must be his duty 
to enforce the first four commandments of the law in the civil sphere. There's no way to escape it. But what we are arguing for here is a recognition that since God establishes the common kingdom and God's institution of the magistrate has to be understood in light of the sphere into which he is placed, he must punish evildoers. He must punish by the standard of God's law, murder, rape, abuse, theft, anarchy, and lawlessness. All things that relate to the second table of the law, men's offenses, because the purpose for which he has been put into his position is to preserve the world order and to preserve society and mankind's interactions. He's not established as an agent of the redemptive holy kingdom of Yahweh. So then, do you live in a world where you are subject to the civil magistrate? You do. In the past year, we have seen evangelicals unable to give an answer, basic answer, on what the magistrate is and what he can and cannot do. But in all of the discussions, have you ever heard anyone ask the question, where is the civil magistrate first introduced in the Bible? What you always hear is we start with Romans, the book of Romans or some other passage in the New Testament. Nobody ever asked the question, where was he first introduced? Because if you're going to address questions of what should the magistrate do, you would think you would need to address the question, what is the magistrate? And what is his task with God? And where was that first given? And if you go back to the beginning and look at where he was first introduced, it becomes clear he is a minister of the common kingdom. And that will help you to answer and to analyze his task and will help you to distinguish between church and state and sphere sovereignty and the different roles that God has given to all of these things. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck helplessly you know, philosophizing about things and never making any ground because we're not going to be starting with where God defined these things. Now that is the briefest of introductions that I can give to an incredibly large and complex question. But God establishes the common sphere in Genesis 3 and then institutes the magistrate to govern it in 4. That is the first institution or feature of the common sphere where we see the scripture explicitly laying some of these things out. Now we're going to go a little bit faster from here on out. The Bible now follows Cain after establishing the magistrate and kicking him out. The Bible follows Cain on his journey east of Eden under the promise of this uh, human civil government that will help structure the world. And the scriptures use the experience of Cain and his line to highlight many of the other features and institutions that are a part of the common kingdom that they dwell in. Take a look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife. Cain goes forth into the common sphere away from the special presence of God and we make a simple observation. It says he had a wife. And so we see marriage is an institution of the common sphere. These people are unregenerate. That seems to be the way the Bible paints them, Cain and his line, typically unregenerate. And yet, they participate along with the godly in the institution of marriage. Marriage provides a stable social order in which men can live and thrive. It may be fraught with difficulties. But as difficult as it can be in this fallen world, it is still far better than the alternative of everybody running around and sleeping with whomever they want on any given day of the week. You know what that eventually leads to within society. And so marriage is put in. It's a check. It's a restraint on the inevitable effects of lawlessness and sin. Now, prior to the fall, marriage was a part of the holy kingdom. Right? That, marriage is not, not something that exists post-fall. It was there prior to the fall. But those marriages, the institution of marriage had an eschatological component to it. Don't have time to get into all that right now. But marriage is brought into the post-fall world, and it is now made a central component of the common realm. 
And as Jesus explicitly says, it no longer has an eschatological component to it. That is, he says quite clearly, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, not so in the age to come. Jesus puts a specific end mark on the institution of marriage. It's not going to continue. And so, when does marriage now end? Marriage ends at the consummation of eternity. When does the common realm end? As Genesis 9 says, at the consummation of eternity, once the earth is no more. So marriage is a common institution. That will help us tremendously when we come to that passage that a lot of folks don't like to touch, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and its discussion of marriage. Next, we see uh, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So Cain fathers Enoch. And so what we see next is that procreation is an institution of the common realm. And as you go through this, it, it talks about a bunch of different people who are born. So-and-so was born to so-and-so who fathered so-and-so. Right? They're going through and they're, they're procreating. In the pre-fall holy kingdom, I think I might have mentioned this last time, children were born into that kingdom with a stamp of holy on their forehead, metaphorically speaking. That is, they came out of the womb as part of God's eschatological kingdom, and if the kingdom task had been successful, they would have been transported into glory. They came out with a an eschatological trajectory, if you will, from the room. They, they were designated to achieve a certain end. But that's not so anymore. The children born in the common realm actually are born with an opposite trajectory. They're born under the wrath of God. They are sliding, as it were, into the parapets of hell as soon as they are really conceived. They have an opposite trajectory of what they had in the, in the uh, holy realm prior to the fall. But it serves a purpose. You must have procreation. You must have children in order for society to continue. So procreation comes and it becomes an institution of the common realm. But its purpose is changed. That's the point I keep trying to drive home again and again, is that all these features of human life that we all experience, most of them were present prior to the fall and part of that kingdom. But when they, when they bridge that gap over to the other side of the fall, they take on a different orientation, a different purpose, a different end. We see this over and over again. Now, this should be leading to some questions in your mind. If we're saying that all these things like marriage and procreation, you know, they're not part of the holy kingdom, they don't consummate in eternity, then do they even matter? What is their significance? Do we have any duties to them? What is the Christian's relationship to these common institutions? All of those things are good questions, and we will get to them at some point when we have developed the idea of the Holy Kingdom. But, but just be thinking about the implications of these things and forming some questions in your mind. So we have procreation, we have the civil magistrate, we have marriage, all seem to be common sphere institutions. The next one that we come to is found in verse 17 again. When Cain built a city. Cain built a city. So we have here the idea of society, of, of culture building, if you will. Society is key to survival on a large scale. Adam was to build the city of God, and like we said, it would be glorified. But I want you to notice something. Cain is also building. He's building something, just like Adam was tasked with. But what he is constructing here is not the city of God. The sphere that he's developing is not the holy realm. What he's building is man's city. I want you to notice something. He gives his city a name. But the name that he gives it is not named after God. This is not Yahweh's city. It says in verse 17, He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now think about procreation and sonship. 
His son is his image and likeness, right? That's what it says about Seth when he's born to Adam in Genesis chapter 5. This is Cain's image and likeness. And so he takes his own image and likeness and he says, I'm going to name my city that I built after basically myself. This city is meant to exalt man and his achievements. It's not destined for glory. It belongs to a different sphere. Again, a note. It is entirely legitimate for him to do this. It is entirely legitimate for Cain to build. God expects that. But the common, the common sphere is legitimate, but the pattern that we're going to see over and over is that men take legitimate things, such as building, even in the post-fall world, and they continually pervert it. They continually infuse it with sin. They continually reject what God has called them to do in these things. So the building of cities and civilizations, something that has been going on in our lives as long as we've been around and for centuries prior, that act of man is part of the common sphere. Next, in verse 20, we see the concepts of livestock, agriculture, and trade. In verse 20, we read, uh, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So another simple observation. They're using the animal kingdom in this common realm. And they're using it presumably to get food and sustenance like clothing, wool. They're probably trading with one another in this sphere, as mankind has been doing. In verse 22, we read, uh, Zillah bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So in this sphere, they're taking the material resources of the world and they are fashioning them for human use. So work and economics and trade are all common kingdom phenomena. Adam was to use these same things, economics and enterprise and material resources to build the eternal city. Man is still doing that after the fall. But there is now a difference as it relates to the nature of the dominion mandate. And here is where I need to provide a clarification from last time. Last time I said that the dominion mandate given to Adam is, is sort of transferred over into the post-fall world, but that it's modified, right? Now it's no longer uh, intended to build the eternal city that will last. Men are still expected to do many of the things that Adam was told to do, like labor, marry, procreate, build. But I said after the fall, they no longer have the promise that this work of their hands will be glorified. So, so it loses its eschatological telos. But I called it dominion. I said it was the dominion mandate, but modified. After talking to Paul and, and doing some more reading and thinking, I am actually in agreement that it is better to assign what God commands fallen man to do a completely different term than the dominion mandate. And in fact, a lot of people have proposed what I think is a very helpful term, and that is the idea that after the fall, man receives something called a cultural mandate. Now, what does that mean? That after the fall, mankind is tasked with building the common sphere. He's tasked with building and marrying and procreating. But the reason we don't want to call that dominion is because we want to save the term dominion to describe the process of building that actually constructs the eternal city. That's what Adam was called to do, to take dominion, to build the eternal city. And the dominion mandate will be fulfilled even after the fall, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who builds the eternal city. He's the one who takes dominion. Mankind in his sin does still have a command to go forth and to build and to prosper and to fill the earth, but it's not promised that he is building the eternal city any longer. So it's probably better to call it merely a cultural mandate. He's called to develop the common sphere without the promise of eschatological glory. Now we get a little hint of what that means or looks like when we examine the next feature of the common realm in Genesis 4. And this one is an interesting one. It is the idea of, the cult of culture and the arts. 
Take a look at verse 21. His brother's name was Jabal, Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Again, just another simple observation. In this city, what are they doing? They're writing songs. They're producing artistic endeavors, right? You can imagine probably they had early forms of, of acting and storytelling and drama, sculptures, uh, rudimentary forms of, of what we now might call in our more sophisticated state pop culture, if you will. Now, please note, it is God who created music. Music is a mathematical reality of the physics and the way that God created the world. It's sound waves being manipulated in certain ways. God's the one who created it. And so, therefore, we should conclude that in their pre-fall form, those realities like music and culture and arts and storytelling, mankind's ability to do all of those things was given by God for a particular purpose. And that is this, that the, the kingdom realm that was to be built was to, not, was to have a culture to it. Right? There would have been a culture to the eternal city that Adam created. It would have been a culture constructed by faithful man. And it would have involved music and arts and, and all of the abilities that God has given to mankind as he's created in the Imago Dei. Now in the fall, these basic realities continue in the common realm. But now what mankind produces is not sacred culture. It's not holy culture. He's still producing music. He's still producing arts. He's still sculpting. He's doing all these things. But it's not a holy culture of sanctification unto God, which forms the substance of the eternal city. That's not what he's producing. What we now call what men produce in the common sphere is common grace <coughs> culture. It is a culture. Mankind is building culture in all its different civilizations. But it's a culture that is produced as a byproduct of God's common mercy or common grace. So we call it the common grace culture. And that's very important. The music, the movies, the novels, and the arts that are a part of our society even are artifacts not of the holy kingdom, but of common grace culture. Now consider the alternative. If you don't think that there is a common kingdom and that everything post-fall is still a part of the holy kingdom of God, just in need of a little cleansing, then you are going to see it as your task to go into all the different areas of culture and try to conform and transform them into sacred culture, holy culture, if you will. You won't recognize that the cultural productions of the common realm are destined to pass away along with the entire sphere itself. And you will believe that it is God's intention to transform all of the cultural phenomenon in the society around you into the culture of the eternal kingdom. In other words, the idea is, on the other alternative, mankind, well, we, we might even say regenerate mankind, goes into all the different spheres of society and transforms them, Christianizes them, if you will, and then the Lord Jesus comes back and glorifies the culture that has been constructed, even if you want to say it's constructed by Christians. But we take the culture around us and that forms the substance of what lasts into the culture of the eternal heavenly realm that we will all inhabit. And you see this idea out in the Christian world, this idea of cultural transformation, under a lot of different monikers. Uh, you, can, you can listen as people talk, and, and you'll catch on to phrases, things like taking the gospel to the culture, right? They usually mean Christianizing it. And what they're fundamentally doing is confusing the dominion mandate, that is the task of building the holy kingdom, and the common cultural mandate of the post-fall kingdom. As we said, dominion always has eschatology in mind. Dominion always means constructing something which is eternal. It always leads to glory. Post-fall man is not called to take dominion, but build the common kingdom. 
As we said, the original dominion mandate will be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled through the construction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider this. I found this interesting as I was thinking and reading and, and uh, contemplating some of this a little bit more. There is going to be a culture in heaven. I think we've said that before. There will be a culture in heaven. But it's not the culture of the common realm. It's not common grace culture that has been Christianized and then glorified. It is a culture that is built by the Lord Jesus himself and then comes down from heaven. You think of that vision in Revelation 21. You get the picture of the eternal city. What's a city? Right? It's, been, it's a society that's been constructed. Inherent in cities, this culture and all that stuff. It's been constructed in heaven, and what does it do? You see it coming down as a bride adorned for her husband, right? The eternal city comes down having been constructed by Christ. For example, music will be a part of the eternal kingdom. But if you pay attention to the scripture, the music of heaven's culture, whenever we kind of get a, a vision into heaven and we see some of the culture there, the music that's produced there is not music that is produced by man, even regenerate man this side of eternity. It is instead music that is produced by God and His Messiah. I'll give you an example. In Revelation 14, Paul's preached through this, John gets a vision of the happenings of heaven and he sees the redeemed singing. They're singing. There is music there. There is culture. There is song that is being preformed. But, and the content of it is, it's not like the content of the music that we produce here, which is magnifying mankind and his desires. It's Music that is designed to praise the, redeem, the redemption of the Messiah. But then we ask the question, who wrote this song? Who wrote it? Where did it originate? Now, you might think, well, I, I don't know. How can we tell? Well, I think the Bible actually tells us quite clearly. According to Psalm 40, in Psalm 40, God himself is the author of this song. Psalm 40 in verse 3 has the Messiah speaking, sort of prophetically, if you will. It's, it's, it's the Messiah speaking in Psalm 40. And the Messiah says, God put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. He calls it a new song. And then that new song spoken of in Psalm 40 that God put in the Messiah's mouth, not that man wrote, but that God put in the Messiah's mouth, that song is the new song that we see the redeemed in heaven singing in the book of Revelation. God is the author of this song. And it says specifically in Revelation that only the 144,000, that is a picture of the redeemed, could sing this song, knew this song, if you will. Because the song is a song that is exclusive to holy culture, to the eternal culture. It did not originate in the common realm that is shared by both believers and unbelievers. God writes the song. He puts it in Christ's mouth. And then as you read through Psalm 40, that's where the, the, you know, the phrase, I will, I will uh, speak to the congregation, the Messiah says. The Messiah teaches this song to his people and they sing it. So there is a culture to heaven, but it's not the common culture around here. It's a culture constructed by God and then received by His church. So then, something a little practical here. When you see a ministry that is constantly replicating the cultural endeavors of the common world and attempting to produce sort of a, a Christian version, it is usually because they're operating on either a functional or an explicit denial of the two post-fall kingdoms, and therefore, they believe that we receive the same dominion mandate after the fall that Adam received pre-fall. And so, therefore, it is our task to take every common institution, like the civil magistrate, family, human culture, etc., and prepare it to actually be a part of the eternal realm that's going to exist. Uh, just to put out some names, this is not a condemnation of these ministries. This is not a condemnation of those associated with them. 
but I would say we have a little bit of a difference between them. So just in the interest of when you're out there and you're consuming stuff, just, just be on the lookout for these kind of things. Just, just take note of them. Ministries like Apologia Studios, Canon Press with Doug Wilson, to an extent Founders Ministries, those would all be uh, ministries that, that adopt the view, basically, that there's one kingdom and that it is our job to sort of Christianize the culture and that the Lord Jesus will come back and glorify the, the culture that we have Christianized. I'm not placing a condemnation. I listen to and read lots from especially those first two ministries. So I'm not telling you to not, not partake of them. This is not a condemnation. But just be, just be on the lookout. Just note those things. So then, the story of Cain and the civilization that he builds shows us the establishment, purpose, and the functioning of the elements of the common realm that we all participate in. All that just from a couple little snippets in Genesis 4. So then what happens? Man operating in the common sphere continues to multiply his corruptions, and as you know, God eventually says, enough, we're not going to do this. And we see Noah and his family as the only faithful ones left on the earth. And then in sort of in a prelude to the final judgment, God destroys the wicked, and he provides salvation to his saints that are on earth, just as it seems that they've been persecuted into oblivion. There's just a handful of them left. And then we have Genesis 9. You can go ahead and flip there. We have Genesis 9. After the flood has subsided, they're, so they're starting to get off the ark. And in the world that emerges, we see God reaffirm the existence of the common sphere. This section will be much shorter than the last one. But I just want you to look at some of the things that God says will characterize the post-flood world and just note their similarities to what we looked at in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 9, go ahead and look at, uh, at verse 2. God says to them, The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. So what's God saying then? That the animal kingdom will be meant to serve the purposes of mankind as they go forth. There will be the animal kingdom to use for food, for clothing, and for any other tasks that they need it for. The same thing as, as those in Cain City who were, you know... Uh, using livestock and dwelling in tents. The use of the animal kingdom is reaffirmed here. Notice again, it's no longer a peaceful dominion over the animals like Adam had, but now there will be dread and strife that characterizes mankind's relationship to the animal kingdom. There's going to be tension. There's going to be warfare in a sense, but we still are to use the animal kingdom. Second, we see the reaffirmation of the civil magistrate. Look down at verse 6. We mentioned this earlier. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. For God made man... In his own image. So God reinstitutes the idea of using the animal kingdom for society. God reinstitutes the civil magistrate. And then in verse 7a, we have the reinstitution of marriage and procreation. And you, be fruitful and multiply. God reaffirms it. There's going to be children. There's going to be procreation. There's going to be marriage. In the next half of that verse, verse 7b, we have a hint at culture building. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The idea of going forth and building societies and civilizations is reaffirmed right here in Genesis chapter 9. That is man's charge in the Noahic covenant. And this charge, it's important to remember this, this charge is given to both regenerate and unregenerate men. This is not a charge just to Christians or to anachronistically use that term for regenerate men. It's given to all and it's even given, the covenant it says, is even made with beasts of the earth. God tells man to do these things, and then he covenants that he will uphold through these institutions the world order. No salvation, however, is promised in the Noahic covenant. 
No salvation is promised here. You will not find anywhere in the Noahic covenant where God promises salvation by means of this covenant. Because salvation doesn't come through the Noahic covenant. It comes through the new covenant. But this covenant has a purpose. It is God's oath to preserve the world in the common realm for the purpose of the Messiah. And everything that's mentioned here, all these institutions like marriage and procreation and family and civilization, all of them are put in the context of a kingdom that is destined to pass away. As he says in chapter 8, does God, all of these things will continue so long as the earth remains. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease as long as the earth remains. There's that time stamp once again. So in other words, we could speak of the Noahic covenant as actually the covenant of the common kingdom. It is the covenant that regulates the world order that we live in right now. That's its intention. It's not a covenant of uh, redemption, if you will. And notice also that this common kingdom is not independent of God. His law rules here too, right? God, God's law about do not murder is also relevant to this common kingdom for all men. But that does not mean that this kingdom is the holy kingdom of redemption. It simply means that God's law governs all things, and it must. All right, now, as we start to move in the direction of a conclusion, I just want to point one further development out in the common kingdom that God institutes. You can flip over to Genesis 11 as we move toward the end of this section. In Genesis 11, so God in Genesis 9, after the, after the flood, he, he reaffirms the existence of all this stuff. But right afterward, we kind of see there's this threat to the common kingdom again. It, it starts to spiral downward, right? And, and mankind collects themselves together. And that's where we get this idea of the Tower of Babel. Mankind comes together in one unified force, and their intent is to rebel against God. And if, they, if, if mankind continues to do this and to compile his wickedness, just as we got to the point in Noah's day where mankind compiled their wickedness and God struck them, if that same episode is allowed to repeat, what's God going to have to do? He's going to have to strike down man. So in order to, uh, to sort of prevent that, if you will, God introduces one additional element into the common kingdom that's meant to sort of preserve things a little bit further. And we see that in the Tower of Babel. And what is the preeminent action of God in the Tower of Babel? He confuses their languages. And as a result, what do they do? They spread abroad all over the world and they start forming people groups and societies and, and civilizations that are kind of independent of one another. What's the significance of that? Because now mankind is sort of at a distance to one another and so they're not able to easily uh, conglomerate themselves in an act of rebellion against God. The fact that God confuses their languages provides a mechanism of slowing down, if you will, the wickedness of man so that they can't communicate together as easily and coordinate their efforts. And so very simply, languages are a feature of the common grace order. They help to preserve the world. And I would say also implicit in the episode of Babel is not only the institution of languages, that's very clear, but also implicit is the idea of the establishment of the nation state. Because when you have people who go out and have multiple languages, then what do they do? They group together and they set boundaries, right? And they start to defend themselves from other groups. And by instituting languages, God was sort of uh, implicitly commissioning the idea of the nation state. And that is why in the modern society, rebellion against the nation state and the, this tendency toward a, a one world government, if you will, I know certain eschatological schools take that and go a little wacky with it, but, but there is kind of that tendency within man. 
And that is rebellion against God. It is a rebellion against something that God has instituted in the common sphere, that mankind should be separated to an extent from one another, and they should not be allowed to all come under one banner, because the inevitable result, as we know, will be rebellion against God and mankind's inevitable destruction. So that's a snapshot of the development of a common kingdom in the early chapters of Genesis. So where does that leave us in the scope of redemptive history? Well, once we come to the end of Genesis 11, God has now finished constructing and building the world stage on which something very significant is going to happen, on which the redemption of the Messiah will take place. All the building blocks that are necessary for human existence and for the restraint of sin have been put in place. We see them all there. We have marriage, family, procreation, nation states, people groups, civil magistrates, vocations, city building, economics and agriculture, music, arts, and cultural productions are all instituted by God in this realm for a very specific purpose. Sin exists, but because of all this, it's held in check. It's where it needs to be for a time and a season. Common blessings and cursings are experienced now by people in a way that is not of necessity tied to their law-keeping, and men have spread abroad throughout the earth. And now the stage is set with men who are now organized into tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations for a Messiah to come in and to reap a harvest of men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's why these chapters are important. It's hard to understand the work of the Messiah and what he's come to do if you don't understand what God was doing here in developing the world in the way that he did it. You see the wisdom of God's providence in arranging all these pieces, and these guys aren't even thinking about it, aren't even conscious of it. They're just moving according to God's sovereignty, and he sets the stage for his Messiah. Now, before we reach the incarnation of the God-man and have a discussion about the eternal holy kingdom that he inaugurates, there's one intermediate stage in redemptive history between this, uh, this establishment of the common realm at the end of Genesis 11 and the coming of the Messiah. It's a really important intermediate stage of redemptive history, and it's the era of the nation of Israel. And it is one of the most misunderstood concepts, I would say, in the whole Bible. Yeah. Now, let me whet your appetite for what's coming. In other words, what I'm saying is before we get to the New Testament and discussion of the holy eternal kingdom of Christ, we're going to have to have a discussion when we talk about Israel. Because people go wrong on Israel a lot, and it leads to a lot of confusion. And if you don't recognize this whole holy common distinction, you won't understand what Israel is. You won't understand the work of the Messiah properly, and you will get very confused about what our role is as Christians in the world. If you go back to Israel and you're not careful about discerning you know, the difference between Israel's state and our state and all those things. So we're going to talk about Israel. But to get your, your appetite wet, listen to a quote from a very prominent theologian. His name is John MacArthur. And we love John MacArthur. If you get Israel right, you will get eschatology right. If you get Israel right, sorry, if you get Israel wrong, you will never get eschatology right. In his mind, getting Israel right is the key to a lot of things. And he's correct about that. The issue is he gets, a, he gets Israel wrong. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about next time, is how do you get Israel right, so to speak. Now, as we come to the application, as we come to the application, there's a lot, I keep saying this is a very practical subject, and there are a lot of very practical things, questions that we should delve into, and we will, such as, okay, what is the Christian's relationship to, like, culture around us, music, movies, those kind of things? You know, what is the Christian's view of work? What is the Christian's view of the government? How do we relate to the civil magistrate and all those things? 
Before we can answer those questions, though, we, we are going to have to talk about the holy kingdom. We've just been talking about the common kingdom for the most part. We will get there. So today, we're not going to answer a lot of those questions in the application. I, I'm sort of going a different angle at the application this time. And it's an application of practical discernment. discernment. Let's see how this understanding of the common distinction in, in the concepts of culture and society helps us in our discernment of many of the things that we encounter daily in the evangelical interwebs. There's a well-known theologian in our day who has a, a fascination, for lack of a better term, with the city. Most of you know who I'm talking about right away. His name is Dr. Timothy Keller. Now, I know that most of you know who that is, and, and I, I trust that most of you don't trust him, and you associate him probably rightly with an attempt to mix aspects of, of cultural Marxism with Reformed Christianity, and, and you should be leery of that. But a lot of his errors can actually be seen in a, his failure to consistently distinguish between the culture of the common realm, common grace culture, and the culture of heaven, the city of heaven, eternal culture. Let me give you a couple of quotes here. Cities have more of the image of God per square inch in them than any other place on earth. Quote number two. The city is culturally crucial. In the village, you might win one or two lawyers to Christ. But if you want to win the legal profession, you need to go to the city where you have law schools and law journals, etc., Quote number three. Most of you are familiar with this one. It is true that we must bring the gospel to the city, but we should also realize how much the city brings the gospel to us. Now, what's going on here? Tim Keller is looking at the cities of the world around him, and, and you know he lives in the city of cities, New York. These cities which we have just identified as cities belonging to a particular realm, the common realm. And in those cities, they produce culture, common grace culture. But Keller is subtly looking out at the city and the cultures that are there, and he is imputing to them the status of something that will in and of itself become part of the kingdom of God and therefore forms the substance of what Christ will glorify when he comes back to inaugurate the eternal state. Consider the sec just one portion of the second quote again. If you want to win the legal profession, consider that for just a moment, the legal profession, lawyers. Lawyers and law are part of the common institution. They're a part of, of the, the status of law that falls under uh, the civil magistrate, if you will. But Keller says that it's not just individual lawyers that are the subjects of eternal redemption, but rather the profession of lawyerism itself will be redeemed. He says that you can redeem the law profession or the law institution. If you want to win it, I think is the terminology he used, stand in for redemption. He views the culture produced and which lawyers are a part of in the common realm as something that God has designated to be made holy and hence subject to glorification. And so the heavenly city, again, will be composed of the culture that we produce here made pure. Rather than the culture of the common era, serving sort of a temporary purpose and then passing away once Christ returns and brings down the heavenly culture that he's constructed. In this line of thinking, the common culture forms the foundation of the eternal realm. 
And so what are the practical results of that that we see in his ministry and really in evangelicalism around us? If the gospel mission includes not only redeeming souls from sin and conforming them to the culture of heaven that is built by Christ, but if the gospel mission also includes redeeming the culture around us in its institutions, sort of divorced from individuals, then it is therefore a part of the Christian's duty. It must be a part of the Christian's duty to redeem every category of society. And where, if culture is an entity that can be redeemed, where is culture most heavily concentrated? Cities, right? And it's, if our task is to go and redeem something, then we are to go to where it is most prominently found, and that is the city. And so we go to where the music and the political spheres and the technological innovations and film and architecture and commerce and the magisterial reign are most heavily concentrated. We go to the city as Christians. And so what do you get? You get the obsession with urban ministry. Have you not seen that as you've looked around you, the obsession with urban ministry? It's all over the place. Functionally, it's all, I found Keller at different points saying, well, we're not saying that the only people that matter are the ones who live in cities. Okay, I guess I appreciate that to an extent. But in practicality, what is the emphasis always on? The city, the city, the city. We've got to go into the city. Christians have to live in the city. We have to redeem those who are in the city. Because there we find not only souls who can be redeemed, but we find culture that can be redeemed. We've got to go get that too. So we have to go where it is. And how is that justified? By functionally confusing the common kingdom and its temporal culture with the culture of the eternal kingdom of God. And so, to conclude here, here are some of the conclusions that Keller reaches in his work on the significance of the city. Let me just read you four conclusions he reaches based upon that idea of the significance of the city. First thing he says, you must reach the city to reach the culture. Second, if you, reach, if you want to reach the world, you must reach the city. Third, reach the city to reach your own heart with the gospel. And number four, you will eventually see that you need the city more than the city needs you. Do you see the confusion there? There is a city that we need, but it's the one that Abraham was looking to. It's the eternal city, the one that he had his hope set upon. But this man has confused that city, the eternal city, with the cities of the common realm, thinking that one becomes transformed into the other. And so what do we end up with? in his church. Things like men dressed like fairies dancing around on stage in church as part of a cultural display, right? Dancing, if you will, as part of culture now gets brought into the church in a sense. Why? Because the common culture is subject to redemption. We're in the church trying to redeem things, so we just bring it in here, Christianize it a little bit, and there you have it. You have dance, uh, holy dance, if you will, from men dressed in tights. The kingdom of Christ is not brought in through redemption or, trans, uh, or transformation of the common realm and its culture. The kingdom of Christ is brought in through the application of redemption to the souls of men and women. Now, most of you know when you read a Tim Keller thing that, that what he's saying is off at different points, but it may be kind of hard because he's very vague a lot of times to discern why. But do you see how recognizing the difference between holy and common, just on a basic level, and, and it will help you as you discern what you are seeing and hearing? You know, we all kind of recognize it's just this odd thing that's off with this urban emphasis. Well, where does it come from? It comes from getting off at the foundations, at stuff like this. 
Now, most people have recognized in the conservative reformed world that having male ballerinas dance on stage is most definitely wrong. But now you can actually follow, I trust, the theological dots that will help you to explain where we got off to begin with. So, the, the application is very simple. As you're reading, as you're listening, as you're consuming stuff from, from any theological background, just have these categories in your mind. Have these distinctions in your mind and analyze what's coming into you. Filter them based on how is what they're saying related to the idea of holy and common? How, what are the assumptions inherent in what they're saying? Right? And, and as you do that, the Lord, we trust, will bless it. And uh, the goal of all of this, of course, is to get our minds and our hearts centered around where the Scriptures do, and that is the kingdom of Christ. We will answer questions about the common kingdom. We do have duties there. But first and foremost, preeminent in all things, must be Christ and His kingdom. If we get off on that, we get off on a lot, and it becomes very dangerous. So let's pray.